everybody. Good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm going to take a few moments and pray and then uh, we'll get started. See what God has to say to us tonight. So let's pray. Father, thanks for meeting with us. We thank you, God, for an opportunity to gather together. Uh, We thank you that you're here and we're here with you. And God, we ask you that you lead, you guide, you empower. We ask God that you speak tonight. And that we'd have really just open hearts and minds, open eyes, open ears to hear what you have to say. Let's pray, Father, that uh, you would empower this time. Pray, God, your anointing on our teaching, anointing God on your word. And I pray, Father, you to really take that word right into us deep, into the deep places. And I pray for change. I pray for inspiration. I ask God that we'd be encouraged tonight. For asking in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles thirteen five. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Second Chronicles 13.5 is where we're heading. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? All right. Thanks for reading that. I'm going to look at a couple things about this verse tonight just to uh, consider some of the things that are being said there but just to give you a little bit of background on this this is uh, there's two sides that are at odds with one another as is normally the case uh, somebody's at odds with somebody uh, you got Abijah who was uh, a king uh, and Jeroboam who was a king and they were at odds with one another over a few different issues. Now, what you need to keep in mind about both of the things that are going on, first off, and I want to say this right off the bat, Abijah uh, was not really uh, down with the Lord. All right, he, he, um, he, he talked about God a lot, and he, uh, he, he was uh, encouraging toward his people's worship of God, 
but he wasn't exactly serving God with a whole heart or anything. So I want to say that right off the bat. But he was upset with Jeroboam because Jeroboam, uh, two things had happened. One, Jeroboam wasn't following, because he was king over uh he was king over his people, but he wasn't following the throne of David. Abijah was of the line and lineage of David. Jeroboam had gone a different way, and so he wasn't following the line and the lineage of David. And so uh, Abijah was upset about that. And the second thing that Abijah was upset about is because the people that were following after Jeroboam were uh, following idolatry. They were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. They were participating in things they shouldn't have been participating in. And so he was upset because he was a, that Jeroboam was allowing the people to do that. So those are the two main issues that were going on. Uh, that, that was his position versus his adversaries. And so he considered the political issues that were going on. In other words, they had broken off from the line of David as the king. Uh, he considered that to be rebellion, and then the religious issues that were happening that Jeroboam was allowing, uh, he considered that made them illegitimate, and so those were his arguments. And so he makes this statement here, and I'm not saying that the statement he makes is untrue at all. All I want you to do is have a better understanding of really who he was and what was really going on here, and and let that be instructive too, because uh it's important that, that we understand where people are coming from to understand when people argue or when people have varying points of view. Uh, it's good to have a good little background on the situation to understand why maybe someone believes the way that they do. Uh, it, it maybe helps us to have a little better understanding of why maybe two parties can't work it out. It may be uh, it's, it's instructive for us to kind of understand so that we can if we're going to be peacemakers, like God wants us to be, that uh, we can understand how to bring people together, too, that need some peacemaking. So I gave you both sides of that uh, kind of as a thumbnail because there's a lot more to the story, of course. But Average is upset, and he makes this statement, in, and he, said, he says this, and literally what he says there, is it not to you to know? That was literally what he was saying. Or... But he's, if you kind of interpret that into modern day language, it would be this says, you need to consider this and acknowledge it. And so he's really throwing down some, what he considers to be truth to Jeroboam. And like I said, I'm not disagreeing with what he says because what he says is true. Uh, it's just that his position on it is a little bit weak because of who he is and what he was actually doing. And so he's asking Jeroboam, he's like, so you need to consider this. I mean, don't you know this? Isn't this something that's obvious? Isn't this something that everybody knows? And so what you need to do is you need to consider what I'm about to say, and you need to acknowledge it. And that is, and then you can read the rest of the verse, see what he says, where he talks about David, he talks about uh, of the line and the covenant, and how it's a covenant of salt. And so he goes down and he says, okay, but you need to understand that. Basically, he was saying, you need to acknowledge me as the king. You need to stop what you're doing. And all of you need to stop that idol worship and come back and worship God the way that you were 
intended to worship him. That's basically what he's saying. So, so like I said, he wasn't exactly right with God himself, but he was representing and what could be considered an orthodoxy. Uh, it was the way that Israel had been taught to believe. And so, from the beginning, God had taught Israel that they were to worship him and him alone. And so he was representing that orthodoxy. He was representing God's kingdom as God had set it up, that he was still serving Jehovah. And so even though he wasn't exactly right with God, it's not uncommon for people who deny the power of God in their life to actually boast of the form. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it's fairly common for people to to maybe deny the power of God in their own life. In other words, they, they're not really participating in God's power. They're not really participating in what God is doing. They're not really participating in serving God. But they will definitely boast of the, the form of God. Um, who, who can we think of? I don't want you to think of an individual, but... I mean, you think of most religious people. You know, if it comes right down to it, what do most religious people do? They, they do what they want to do, or they do want to do what God wants them to do. Well, most who I would term religious people just do what they want to do. But they have a form of godliness. They have a form of, uh, of some type of uh, relationship, or some type of agreement, or some type of, of identification with God. And that, that's just not too uncommon. I mean, you think about people that you've known in traditional religion. Um, they have a certain form to what they believe. They have a certain form to how they act or what they do or the language that they can use. But they really don't live in any of it. Like It's just something that's part of life, but not really over life or consuming life, or really directing life. So our understanding is that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is our reasonable act of worship. Uh, we believe that we give our heart, we give our life to Jesus. We believe that he directs, he leads, he guides. We believe that uh, we need to hear what he says to do and do it. We believe a lot of stuff, but all of those things that we believe actually affect our lives. All those things that we believe actually mean something in that we are moving forward in a relationship with Christ that should be real, intimate, and growing. And, and so that, that's where we're at, but there, there's tons of people that they don't really have that kind of agreement with God. They really don't have that kind of relationship with God. And, and I think, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not necessarily judging anybody because I don't really care, but I'm just saying that that seems to be kind of an obvious thing in our world is that there's people that will claim one thing, but when it comes right down to how it affects their life, it's really not much of anything at all. And so it appears that Abijah was like that, that he had the claim. In other words... He's representing an orthodoxy that doesn't really affect his life. But he's making a hard stand on it. 
He's making a hard stand about an orthodoxy that he's not really living. And that's kind of tough to do. It's kind of tough to take a hard stand about something when you're not really part of it. I mean, you can talk about it, talk, 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 but there's no actual do, do, do. And so you create a situation where you represent or you're trying to represent something that you're just not really connected with. And Abijah found himself in that position. Now, I want you to, to consider that he wasn't in a very strong position. And so his words were probably more inflammatory than they were reconciling. Because everybody could see what was going on with him, and he wasn't really living it either, and he wasn't really a part of it. And so it probably just served to make other people angry, make other people mad. So you think about the idea of a covenant, because he brings up the idea of covenant. And covenant's important uh, to us in our relationship with God, because covenant is a firm and it is an unalterable compact. That we have with God. And there's different forms of covenant. There's a covenant that could be bilateral. In other words, I agree to something, you agree to something, we agree together and we have a covenant. Or it could be unilateral, where one party agrees to something and he just makes that pledge and that commitment and that's the end of it. It's a unilateral covenant. And you look at what God makes with, with his people and you see these covenants that are being made. Now, some of the, the covenants that God makes with his people are bilateral. In other words, they, you see the language, if you do this, then I will do that. That's a bilateral covenant. And then there's some covenants that are just, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's going to be. And so what Abijah brings up is the covenant that God made with David about one of his descendants always being on the throne. And that was a unilateral covenant. In other words, David didn't, didn't, he didn't need to do anything. Uh, his descendants didn't need to do anything. It was a unilateral covenant in that God just said, here's my covenant with you, that you will always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. Unilateral. Just God speaking, God saying, and that was it. End of it. So when Abijah draws on that, he's drawing from a strong position. Because he's drawn from a position that can't really be argued. He's drawn from a position that has nothing to do with the fact that Abijah is not really living it out anyway. And, and so he draws on this covenant, this unilateral covenant, and it is a firm and unalterable compact. Why is that? Because it only depends on one person, that's God. And he doesn't change. So when you have a covenant that has to do with God, when you have a covenant that is unilateral on his behalf, what you see there is you see something that is sure, you see something that is authentic, you see something that does not change. And that's an important aspect of it. God made a, a unilateral covenant with Abraham also. And he told Abraham, he's like, through your seed the whole world would be blessed. Now there wasn't anything that Abraham had to do in order for that to come to pass. There wasn't anything Abraham had to say. There wasn't anything Abraham had to bring about. That was just something God told him that this was going to happen. And so that was a sure, firm, authentic, and unalterable compact that God made with Abraham. And so we see that happening through Jesus. 
Then we see this compact that God made with David. They'd always have someone on the throne. Well, again, sure, firm, authentic, unalterable, and we see again that being fulfilled through Jesus. So both of those instances where you see the compact being made, this unilateral covenant being made, what you see happening is that it's being fulfilled through Jesus. That's what you see happening. So we'll come back to that. Then you come to this idea of salt. And the idea of salt is interesting because you see salt as being valuable all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's, uh, it, it's valuable all throughout that part of the world. I was just watching a documentary the other night, uh, and they were in North Africa. And in parts of North Africa, salt is still, to this day, used as currency. In other words, people use salt to buy things with when they have it. That's how valuable salt is. I mean, you think about what do we use for currency? And I don't mean like paper money, but I mean, you think, you know, throughout the ages, you got silver is valuable. And so that's used. Gold is valuable. So that's used. Copper sometimes is used. Uh, You look at the metals that are used. Look at at gemstones that are used. I mean, all those have been currency throughout the ages because people assign value to them. Well, another thing that you don't often think of is, is having value, especially in this part of the world, is salt. Salt is valuable. Salt has value to it to the point that it can be used as currency to buy and to sell. So, it, in this case, salt is used to describe the covenant. It's used to qualify the covenant. And the word is used here by Abijah in order to, for, for it to make it a, a stronger statement. In other words, this is a covenant of salt. And what he's trying to do there is make a strong statement saying that this covenant cannot be changed. Now, salt is an indispensable and was an indispensable in this day by tradition for the ratification of friendship, alliance, and treaty. That's how those things were ratified, was through salt. And so it was held to be secure. If salt was involved in it, then it was held to be secure. Now in the Old Testament, salt, and you may have wondered about this if you ever read through Leviticus and you're wondering why, or you read through some of the other books that talk about, some of the Pentateuch that talk about how the sacrifices were given, you may have wondered, well, why do they include salt with the sacrifices? Because you see that they include salt in with the sacrifice. Well, why do they include salt? Well, it was a continual renewing of the covenant between God and man every time the sacrifice was made. That's an important part of the sacrifice. You throw the salt in there with it, and that means it's perpetual, it's everlasting, it's firm, and it's being made over and over and over. It's renewed over and over again. So salt represented that renewal. And what, and what is being said through the use of salt is it will last for all time to come. So what do you, what do you know about salt? A couple things. What's the most obvious thing you know about salt? Why do you have salt on the table? Flavors, right? 
So it brings flavor to things. Flavor is important. It brings out flavor in things. And so salt has been used throughout the ages as something that, that brings flavor. Now salt can come from a lot of different sources. Okay, what's the biggest, uh, you think about where, <laughs> where do you find a lot of salt? Like, like big, 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 big salt. Where? In the ocean. Salt water, right? So there's salt in salt water in the ocean. Where else is salt? In the earth. Okay, salt is all throughout the creation. All throughout our creation, God has put salt. I mean, literal salt. And you can get different kinds of salt, but salt is located throughout the creation. Even in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the desert, you can find salt. And, and that's why salt's valuable in the desert. Because there's, there's part, portions of the desert where you can actually find salt. And you can gather it, and you can sell it in blocks. And that's how it's used as currency. So, salt is valuable in the sense that it's, it flavors things. What else does salt do? It preserves things. Uh, if before there was uh, refrigeration, uh, people would preserve things with salt. They'd pack it with salt, and, and salt stops, or I shouldn't say stops, but it slows down the decaying process. And so salt was valuable if you wanted to keep something and you wanted to hold on to it. Why would I take salt pills when I was growing up down in South Carolina playing football. Why'd they give us salt pills? Yeah, so your body needs salt, right? And when you when you get rid of the salt through sweat, uh, your body needs that salt to maintain a certain homeostasis so you don't start cramping up and you don't start losing strength and you have to quit and you have to stop what you're doing so salt's an important part of our body chemistry that that inside of us we need salt and we need enough salt in order to run our body for our body to run itself so so salt is in everything i don't know if you heard that now it's not readily available in everything but it's in everything it's in the ocean it's in the earth it's in our bodies, and it is, even in the middle of the desert, there's salt. All right, so it's an important part of life. Important part of life. So which of those, and you can take your pick, but which of those characteristics of salt do you think uh, is being called upon, in this case, when he refers to a covenant of salt? Which one? The preserving one, all right? So a covenant of salt is a sure thing. In other words, it's a covenant which is by itself firm and unalterable. It's a compact. But then when it's a covenant of salt, that means it lasts forever and ever. It's just going to last for all time to come, is what it says there. And so you have that aspect of it, that aspect of the salt in and of that it will last for all time to come. So salt and sacrifice 
sealed the covenant and made it perpetual. In other words, that covenant and the covenants that would follow would never be made void. And it's something that you could be sure of. Open up, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I need a volunteer, verse 13. Alright, thanks for reading that. Uh, so I want to go back to the idea of covenant. I want to go back to the idea of Old Testament sacrifice. And, and what the sacrifices represented, and they were made over and over and over again. And how those sacrifices, and you think about the main sacrifices that are being made. Now there were some sacrifices that were used in order to seal agreements. In other words, two people wanted to enter into an agreement, they'd bring sacrifice, they'd make a sacrifice, and then the agreement was sealed. Or uh, some sacrifices were made as reminders. In other words, people would bring something, a sacrifice, as a reminder of what they had done. It, it put value on something that they were doing. In other words, uh, if, if the, say, parents were bringing their child to um, be circumcised, bringing their son to be circumcised, there would be a sacrifice that would be made for that event. And so it added value to it. In other words, it costs them something to sacrifice their son. And, and it adds value and remembrance to this, the, the event that's taking place. Not only does it add value and remembrance to it, but it also seals it. In other words, this is done. It's done between us, and it's done between me and you and God. Uh, and then there were other sacrifices that were made and I'm really simplifying this, but I want you to think about other sacrifices that were made for the forgiveness of sins. There were different offerings that were made and different sacrifices that were made. I mean, you think about the Day of Atonement, which was one of the, the high holy days that they would offer up. And there would be a, a, a scapegoat that would, the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, send him out of the camp, then there'd be the lamb that would be slain. And it was through the slaying of the lamb and through the, the, the scapegoat that the people as a whole would be forgiven and cleansed. And, and so that would be what would happen. And so that would be good for how long? A year. And then they'd make the same sacrifice again the next year. What about the next year? And again the next year. And the next year. And the next year. And this was a sacrifice that was perpetually being made. But throughout all of these things... And throughout the life and the religious life of the people, I just wanted you to think about how they were constantly being drawn back to their God. In other words, all of these things had the effect of drawing them back to their God. And, and the idea of the salt behind it was that, well, this is going to last. This is something that means something, that, that this covenant that we've made, even though there would be more sacrifices, every time that sacrifice was made, and it was made with salt. It was like, but, but God's going to honor this covenant forever. 
that a sacrifice is going to be made, that we're going to be forgiven and cleansed, and he's going to honor this forever. That's what he's saying through the salt. And so they had that assurance and they had that belief as long as they could hold on to it. And so symbolically, that's why that was important. Now come back, come to the New Testament, and you got Jesus. And you think about the Jesus and, and how he made the sacrifice that he made. And, you know, all of the, the symbolism of that, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, and how he was sacrificed, and he brings forgiveness and cleansing of sin. Now what's interesting about his sacrifice is that there's something built into his sacrifice. Because his sacrifice is made for you and me. His sacrifice is made for us. But we're the salt. He called us that. He said, you're the salt. So if we're the salt, then we're the part of the sacrifice that means that it's perpetual. We're the part of the sacrifice that guarantees that it is indispensable. Part of the sacrifice that says it's firm and unalterable, that it's authentic, that's a compact that's being made between God and man. It's the security, it's the ratification. We're the ratification of it. And how weird that is that in, in times past that we maybe needed a symbol that said, okay, well, this is for sure because we're symbolizing this and we're making this compact with salt. Well, the way that he's, he's brought it forward for us is that we're the salt. Sacrifice was made once and for all, and we're the salt. In other words, every generation of Christian that is born, every generation of Christian that comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, every generation that lives and dies in the kingdom of God is the ratification, is the surety, the security of the covenant has been made between God and man through Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't use a lot of symbols around here. There's a reason for that. God has moved away from that. And he meant to move away from that. I will not encourage you, will not encourage you at all to deny the power of God to live in a religion. I won't. I won't encourage you at all to embrace an orthodoxy, but deny the living God in and through your life on a daily basis. And I don't care what that orthodoxy is. And you can think it's a good thing, and I'm going to tell you it's not. You can think, well, oh, if I, if I know these things and I have these things and these symbols. and this, Yeah, no. No. The reason for it is, is that either we have a living relationship with our Savior or none of it matters. And I really believe that. I'd rather shut this place down, just close the doors, and have people living in some false sense of orthodox religion. We either have a relationship and we're living in it, or none of it's going to matter anyway. We're either the salt that ratifies, that seals, 
that makes that whole sacrifice of Jesus authentic. We're either that or we're nothing, as far as I'm concerned, on any religious or faith scale. We're nothing. And so I encourage you to take seriously when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. Do you ever wonder about that? I mean, you hear people teach on it all the time. It's like, well, you know, we're, we, we bring flavor. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. We'll bring some flavor. We're preserving. That's another aspect of salt. And I, and I think that's an important aspect of the salt because it's why everything's still going around here. That's why the earth's still turning. That's why we still got day and night. And that's why the leaves fall and they grow on the trees again. And the whole world keeps moving and it keeps turning because we're still here. Because there'll come a time when we're not going to be here and there's not going to be any salt anymore and nothing's going to be preserved. And this heaven and this earth is going to pass away. And then God's going to replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. And their righteousness is going to dwell there. That's what's going to happen. And and, and I'd, I'd like to be more concerned, I guess, about some of the things that people are concerned about but I'm not that concerned about it. What I am concerned about is me taking seriously who I am. That God said that I am. And I'm the salt. I need to be that flavor. I'm the salt. I'm the preservative. You're the preservative. We're the preservative. We're the flavor. We're the ones that have something to do in this world. Why it's still turning. And why we're still here. There's something to do. We're not just counting days. It's not like we're in a prison cell scratching the wall, keeping track of days. Oh, one more day. Oh, good. Then we get the cross, you know, that five days. And we're just counting. That's not what we're doing. God has us here for a reason. God has us in, the, in his midst for a reason. God has us on this earth for a reason. We're here to do something. We need to take that seriously. But I want you to understand, and, and those are very practical things to understand about what it is to be salt. But the other side of that, and, and really where the rest of that verse comes from, and, and what Jesus talked about, we're the salt, well, we're the ratification of what he's done. You're living proof. I'm living proof. We are the ratification of the covenant that he's made. That, that covenant is not ratified through being nice, necessarily. That, rati- that covenant is not ratified through, through saying the right things or wearing the right clothes. Or That covenant is not ratified through having the right kind of building or, 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 or having the right language to express it. That's not how that covenant is ratified. That covenant is ratified through our lives. Through our very spiritual life. That we are that salt that is mixed with the sacrifice. We are that salt that is included with the sacrifice. Every generation that comes that has come before us, every generation that comes after us, is the salt that's mixed with that sacrifice that guarantees that covenant throughout all of our generations. I mean, people want to Want to, you know, they make stuff up to make themselves feel better about where they stand. Well, who, what do you mean? Well, 
I don't know if Jesus likes me. Do you understand, and, and I hope you can maybe get a hold of this tonight, how ridiculous those statements are? That they are the product of religion that is trying to control you? Religious institutions have tried to control men and women through telling them you will either jump through our hoop or you won't be right with God. That's not how God set it up. Your very life is enough proof for you and for me and for the world that the covenant that Jesus has made is in effect and is moving in your life right here and right now. I do not need the ratification of an organization over me to understand what Jesus has done in my life. I have my life that proves that. I have my life that guarantees that. I have my life that authenticates that. Nobody has to tell me that, ever. And those of you that grew up in those institutions of control, those of you that grew up in those institutions that were trying to solidify their own power bases, you need to reject that in Jesus' name and be done with it. It is astounding to me, and, and I'm not picking on anybody, but I've known some of you for like 30 years, and you're still struggling with those ideas. Stop it. Stop it. And I know I didn't come out of that. And so maybe I just don't have the moral ground to stand on to say I don't get it. But I don't get it. I guarantee you I do not understand it. It is so obvious to me that these people just want to control people. It's so obvious to me these people want to fleece people. It's so obvious to me these people just want to solidify their base and collect as much guilt money as they possibly can, that no matter how corrupt they are, no matter how many times they're found in corruption, no matter how many times over history it's been proven they have been corrupt on top of corrupt, you will still pledge your fealty, your allegiance, and your money to them. I don't get it. If any modern organization ever acted the way that they do, you would never give them a cent of your money. But then again, they don't claim to hold your eternal soul in their hand, do they? They don't claim to have power to keep you out of heaven, do they? What a bunch of lies. The truth of the matter is, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the salt. And in the Old Testament sense, and all throughout the Old Testament, what that means and what that needs to mean is that you're the proof. You're the guarantee. You're the ratification. You're the security. You don't need anything else. You don't need me harping. You don't need me telling you every day that Jesus loves you. You don't need me telling you all the time Jesus likes you, that Jesus has a plan for your life and all the rest of that stuff. He died to tell you that. I mean, I, I don't have any argument that's any better than him giving his life for you. That's the best one ever. Somebody dies for you. Nobody's ever going to show you any greater love than that when they lay down their life for you. Nobody. Ever. Never. Your life, your life is the proof. And so I encourage you toward it. And I can still keep harping on it, I guess. You know how you get tired of hearing me talk about it? I mean, 
Really? I get tired of talking about it. I do. I might have gotten a little frustrated just then. You have to forgive me for that if you hold it against me. But it's a frustrating thing to watch people walk around in false guilt and all that weird stuff that comes with it. And all that weird religious stuff. All that weird religious control. And all that weird religious kind of weird morality stuff that people walk around in. It don't make any sense to anybody else, but man, they walk in it. It's frustrating. The gospel's simple. The gospel is not complicated. Somehow we've made it so complicated it takes an expert to explain it to you and to deal it out to you. And that just is not the case. The gospel's simple. And you can get all you need all by yourself. You can. There's only one mediator between God and man. You know who it is? The man Jesus. Yeah. That's what the Bible says. And so any other person that you ever have in your life as a mediator between you and God is false. That's a lie. That's a lie. And if you're allowing some old church belief to continue to, to somehow reign in your life, then you're just letting a lie reign in your life. It's time to stop it. It's just time to stop it. Because Jesus is, is about freedom and liberty. Jesus is about you, know, you being sure in, in who He is and who you are. Jesus is all about you finding that kind of peace and that kind of rest for your life. Jesus is all about you living it out. He is. He's all about you depending on the Holy Spirit. He's all about you depending on the Holy Spirit if you got to speak in front of people. He's all about you depending on the Holy Spirit if you got to stand up for your faith. He's all about you depending on the Holy Spirit if, if you need to, to face any kind of persecution or any kind of resistance in your life. That's what He's about. And I want to tell you something. And I, and, and again, I'm not picking on anybody, but I asked somebody this question earlier today, and it wasn't directly to them. It was just kind of a hypothetical question, but how do you think we would have done as a modern day church in Rome as Christians? I'm just asking you. Because I want to tell you something. In Rome, there are parts, there are times in Rome where if you were a Christian and you, and, and people, caught you or, or the wrong person saw you worshiping or whatever, they would just take you to, it to be eaten by lions in front of a cheering crowd. Or they would just light you on fire while you were still alive. Now, I don't know if you want to calculate the survival rate on that, but it ain't 96%. Now, I know, and again, I'm not making light of certain things. I just want you to, to hear me out here. I will not, and I refuse, to sacrifice my faith because I'm afraid of a virus. You hear me? I'm going to do it. And I want you to think about how would the church have done in Rome with a real and viable threat to their lives every day, meeting in catacombs 
in order to meet together and to worship illegally. How do you think we would all have done? Because I'll tell you, man, again, ain't my business because I ain't in charge and I don't know what's going on, but I know this church is still ain't open. Okay? And, and this is the strongest statement I've made about this yet. I just wanted to make a strong statement. I wanted you to hear me. Because, you know, we're living basically under a, dic a dictatorship right now. And that's just the way it is. But that doesn't mean Jesus sitting on the throne, does it? Doesn't mean Jesus isn't still pouring out his love, does it? No. Doesn't mean we can't love our neighbor, does it? No. Doesn't mean we can't worship our God, does it? No. Doesn't mean we can't uh, find ourselves in, 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 in relationship with one another, in relationship with the people that are around us? No. If the whole world's living in fear, they may be living in fear. Do we have to live in fear because they are? No. Because the simplicity of the gospel is this. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to live in fear. And what am I saying? I'm guaranteeing, oh, you're never going to get sick? Nope. Nope. Just like if I was talking to a Christian in Rome, am I guaranteeing you're never going to get caught and you're gonna, not going to be made a spectacle of? And killed by beasts or burned alive or crucified? Would I be guaranteeing that? No. No. But that's not the point. The point is that we got to live our lives. Me and you, all of us, we need to live our lives. And we can't live in fear. And I can only imagine that this fear that is somehow taking over our lives isn't somehow based in a misunderstanding of what it means to know Jesus what it means to live in covenant relationship with Him, what it means to be the salt of that covenant, the guarantee and the fealty of it, the, the unalterable compact that God has made with us no matter what, and to find rest and peace and grace and love in the midst of that. It's simple. I know, maybe I just don't understand. You want to believe that? Believe it. Believe it. If you do. I think I understand. I think I understand that we have life to live. And we need to get about it. We have truth that we can live in and we need to get about it. That we have mercy and grace to live in and we need to get about it. We have love to to live in, we need to get about it. We need to be ministers of those things too, the people that are around us. Because we're living in a needy world, man. And I, I'm not speaking this to anybody but you, I guess. Us. Nobody else cares about what I'm talking about tonight. And so I'm just talking to us. I'm talking to us that have allowed the, the religion to rob us. And it's time to stop it. I'm talking to us that have, have uh, just just agreed and allowed complicated ideas and stupidity to stop us. And it's time to stop that in our lives. And it's just time to take hold of a, some simplicity. It's time to take hold of some love that, that Jesus has for us. It's time to take hold of some truth that is obvious and just right in our face. 
and to live. I can't be worried about stuff. And it's easy to worry about stuff, but I can't be worried about stuff. I just gotta live. I gotta be about Jesus. I gotta be about His power in my life. I gotta be about Him living in me and through me. I gotta be about the Holy Spirit leading me and directing me and guiding me and empowering me. That's what I need to be about. And whatever comes, comes. Whatever happens, happens. That's the way it is. But I I never believed I could control it anyway. Why would I believe that now? I mean, maybe that speaks to some of you about things that you believe that aren't true. I don't know. Maybe some of you believe you can control things. I don't know. But that gets challenged all the time now, doesn't it? You got to jump through some hoops to keep believing you're controlling stuff, I'll tell you that. Because that gets challenged almost every day. And it's a lot easier to understand you don't. At least you don't have to do the mental gymnastics involved with trying to justify whatever's happening around you. And so as we go back to you know, where we started with this. We have a good covenant that Jesus has made where He died. He gave His life. He shed His blood once and for all. And that's renewed every day in us and through us because we're the salt. We're the whole salt part of it that makes it true, that makes it sure, that makes it secure. It's us. And if you're looking for some outside thing that does that, you're looking in the wrong place. Man, that's kind of for sure for everything in the kingdom. You know, it's you. You know, people came to Jesus. Where's this kingdom that you're talking about? And Jesus is like, yeah, you won't be able to find it out there. You can't see it. You can't measure it. You can't locate it like that. You can't weigh it. It's not like that. Kingdom of God's in you. Oh, but why am I looking for it out there then? I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that. Why are you looking for some kind of surety, some kind of... uh, unalterable, authentic compact out there when it's in you. You're looking for assurance. Where's it at? Out there? In that person over there? No. It's in you. And the kingdom revolves around that. The the work of Jesus revolves around that. Jesus in you. Jesus in me. Salt. Light, truth, in you, in me. So I want to take a few moments and just pray, just a simple prayer that God would change our perspective. And I don't know how that happens. 
I can't answer that part of it. I just know that we serve a God that can do it. That's all. Um, I've tried every way to get perspective to change. Um, I try convincing. I try to model. I try to show an illustration. I come up with a new story. Uh, I, I I try. We got historical courses we look at. I've been through that kind of stuff. I mean, I've tried, and and it comes down to Jesus, help us. And so, Father, thanks for. I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your um, agreement that you've made concerning us. That there's been a restoration a purpose over your people. And that restoration continues to this day and will continue on past this day. That there's a restoration of the created purposes that you made all this stuff and all that we see. And we're part of that restoration. I say thanks for that, God. And I say thanks for Jesus and the sacrifice that he's made. That he shed his blood that Whatever requirements there were, whatever things needed to happen, whatever things needed to take place, they were fulfilled and met through Him. And it is finished. It's done. And so I thank you that we have been restored into relationship. I pray that we've been, I thank you that we've been restored into life. I thank you that we've been restored into that place of fellowship with you. I thank you, God, that there's nothing left to be done. And so here we are. We are the guarantee. We're the assurance. So God, I pray that you would help us change our perspective, trying to look for something else to look to someone else or to look to some other thing or to look to some fad or gimmick or place or, or, or movement or whatever it is that we think is going to really solidify all that you've done in our life. We're the solidification. And so I pray that you would help us to change our perspective on that. We're the salt. In a covenant of salt, we're the salt. You're the sacrifice. We're the salt. So thanks. And that makes it sure and forever. That's what we need. So I pray you'd simplify us, our thoughts. Simplify what we think we need. Simplify what we think we need to look for. And I pray, God, we'd find an assurance, a safety, and consequently a boldness in you. A bravery in you. And I pray that you would raise us up as a church that wouldn't be a bunch of scaredy cats. But I pray you'd raise us up bold I pray you'd raise us up, God, to stand firm. I pray that you'd raise us up, God, to stand as a witness 
in this world that we live in. You haven't called us to hide, but you've called us to be a light on a hill. Thanks. Thanks. Forgive us where we need to be forgiven. Cleanse us where we need to be cleansed. And we receive your power as we move forward here and now. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Screw by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.